Welcome to Ask the Expert. It's a brief, informative, and lively discussion with experts in type 1 diabetes and related interdisciplinary research. We're recording this event. We'll post it on the Sugar Science site, YouTube channel, shortly after the presentation. And if you have any questions for our guests, please feel free to enter them in the chat or raise your hand at the end of the presentation. Today, we have as our guest, Dr. Maria Redondo. She's actually an MD, PhD, as well as an MPH, and she's coming uh, to us from Texas Children's Hospital, where she is director of research there. She's also a professor of pediatrics for the pediatric diabetes and endocrinology um, there at the Baylor College of Medicine. She's really interested in discovering the genetic and environmental causes of diabetes that can be leveraged for prevention and treatment. And her current research interests include prediction and prevention of type 1 diabetes, genetics of type 1 diabetes, rare and atypical diabetes, and heterogeneity of diabetes. In her recent paper um, in Diabetes Care that was e-published July 2021, it was really interesting findings. Um, it was entitled or titled TCF7L2 genetic variants do not influence insulin sensitivity or secretion indices in autoantibody positive um, individuals. And so I'm gonna let her sort of walk us through this paper so welcome, Dr. Redondo. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for the invitation to be here and for uh, your interest in, in our work. And I'm actually looking forward to the discussion and, and see if we can uh, you know, investigate more and, and come up with great ideas about this, which I think is important. I'm, I'm looking forward to know uh, to knowing what other people uh, think. So as you invited me to talk about the transcription factor 7 and 2 genetic variants and our uh, recent uh, paper. This is just some kind of kind of uh, that was published in Diabetes Care, where we found that actually in people who are autoantibody positive um, at risk for type 1 diabetes, these genetic variants do not influence insulin sensitivity or secretion, which was, as you are uh, saying in your introduction, a surprise. So you were also mentioning why are we interested in this? So, uh, so this is uh, a gene that has been associated with type 2 diabetes. It's actually the one with the strongest association. So these gene variants have been known to cause abnormalities in insulin secretion, in incretin and glucose-induced uh, glucagon secretion, insulin processing, beta cell development, and insulin sensitivity. So, uh, so definitely in type 2 diabetes is a, a very important gene. And uh, we are interested in uh, being able to predict. Yeah, so basically in a previous uh, paper, we had shown that people with type 1 diabetes at the onset, those who were who had the, um, the variant that is associated with type 2 diabetes actually had higher A1AUC C-peptide had lower AUC glucose and had higher frequency of single positive uh, or antibodies. What does this mean? So we think that uh, among people who are diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, there are some who have not only that autoimmune component that is causing their beta cell function to go down, but also have other factors that are more commonly found in people with type 2 but of course, type 2 is very common and many of us carry type 2 diabetes genes. So how are those uh, interacting and influencing progression to, to clinical diabetes? So those who present with type 1 diabetes, do they have any kind of type 2 mechanisms? 
that's the question that we are trying to answer. And why is it important? It is important because if we find that they have those mechanisms, then we might be able to use some of the treatments that we use in type 2 diabetes to help prevent that progression, or maybe in the future to even treat people who already got uh, diabetes. So of course, in addition to uh, addressing all of the type one component, okay? So, so that's why we think that is important. So, so here we wanted to go a step further in that uh, progression. And we wanted to see what happens not at the onset of type uh, one diabetes that, that is called, as you know, stage three, but earlier stage two, type one, stage one, type one diabetes. So if you guys are familiar with that stage one, is this uh, situation where people have two or more positive eyelid antibodies. Uh, so the risk of developing clinical type 1 diabetes is very, very high. And then type 2 diabetes are those who have uh, abnormalities in glucose that do not meet the criteria for uh, diabetes, but is definitely not normal. And those people are more advanced in that progress. So what, these are the methods. So basically we analyzed uh, data from people participating in the TrialNet pathway to prevention study. Uh, those are all antibody positive relatives of people with type one. Uh, we selected the participants ha that have transcription factor 7L2 SNP information and those who had uh, oral glucose tolerance uh, test data. So a little bit more than a thousand people. So this is the patient characteristics just to kind of bring to your attention that the mean age is 16. So we have children and adults, 72% are children. And then this is the, the distribution of the allele. So the variant that is associated with type 2 diabetes is found in homozygosis in about 8% of these people. That is very similar to the general population as expected. Uh, one allele is carried by uh, almost 44% of the people. So, and what are the insulin sensitivity and secretion indices that we used? So to study insulin sensitivity, we used one divided by fasting insulin. For insulin secretion, the first phase, we used 30 minutes C-peptide index, and then we used the OGTT-derived disposition index, or also called oral disposition index, that is basically the beta cell function that is present relative to insulin sensitivity. And those are in indices that have been validated in people with diabetes. In type one, there's definitely more caveats to their use. We are uh, aware of that, but that's basically, that's the, the best that we could, find, we could find that has been uh, used and, and validated. So the statistical analysis, I'm not going to go over it, just that uh, for, Correction for multiple comparisons, we used a stricter significance value, and, and so some of the results were, did not reach that value. So this is the summary of the results, and I, I was trying to kind of be short in my presentation so that we can have more time for the discussion. So insulin sensitivity was lower as a BMI Z-score increased, that is expected, and was lower in Hispanics, that is also expected. Insulin secretion was uh, positively correlated with age and also with BMI Z-score. So those are part of the mechanisms that we have as BMI increases to, to be able to not have diabetes. So that is expected as well. The oral disposition index was negatively correlated with age, with BMI Z-score, 
and with Hispanic ethnicity. And then none of those indices were associated with transcription factor 7L2, which was the disappointing and unexpected part. So in the multivariable analysis, we adjusted for age, BMI, ethnicity, sex, and then the transcription factor 7L2 as independent variables. And then in, those, in that analysis, we saw that C-peptide index increased with age, BMI's score was associated with higher insulin secretion, lower insulin sensitivity, and lower disposition index. All of those are expected. We found no significant effect of the genetic variant in any of those indices. And that was the, again, the unexpected part. And then we thought, okay, maybe it's because they have abnormal OGTT. So we restricted, we did a different analysis restricting to those with only normal OGTT, which was about 743 people and the results were similar. So these are the tables. I don't think that we can, I mean, we, we have time to go over them, but it's basically just showing the numbers for the summary that I presented. So the study obviously has limitations like any other study. So there was a relatively small number of the people with the uh, variant in homozygosis, this only 8% of the population. There's definitely heterogeneity in the study population in terms of OGTT, and, uh, and that could have affected what our findings. There are limitations in the indices that we use for insulin sensitivity and, and secretion because having type 1 diabetes, having type 2 diabetes, and being on insulin are very important uh, factors that can, that can affect this. And then other hormones such as glucagon and incretins, we were not able to analyze. They, were, they had not been collected. And of course, we need to, to study this in, in other populations and see if this can be generalized to, to other people. So in conclusion, in non-diabetic or antibody-positive individuals, transcription factor 7L2 variants were not related to insulin sensitivity or secretion indices after accounting for BMI, C-score, age, sex, and ethnicity. And, uh, you know, and we always want to thank people who are participating in TrialNet and all the co-authors that Took, uh, that, that collaborated in this in this work, and of course our sponsors and supporters in the in TrialNet. And uh, that's my presentation. So I would like to know if you guys have questions or would like to know the interpretation of why we think this happened, and you know basically any other questions that you guys you guys have. Yeah, I, I, this is great. I mean, I love the fact that you went back into this, you know, the TrialNet and 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 went after these data. I think. Um, I guess if we could talk a little bit about TCL, uh, TCFL2, can you set the stage as to why this is an important genetic variant marker to follow? Um, TCLF7L2 uh, was shown by Rosa Ferreira de Santos in 2018 to correlate with both insulin secretion and postprandial insulin sensitivity in type 2 diabetes. Mm-hmm. At that time, at that publication, it was stated, you know, the mechanisms involved with this association remain unknown and they might include extra pancreatic effects. So, you know, you, you, um, you kind of dove in and, and looked at this, the SNP or this TCLF7L2 in the context of type one diabetes. Did you have any sort of expectations or hypotheses about what might be happening before you got in there and saw the data or what are your thoughts? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. We did have, we were hoping and expecting to find that even in people with autoantibody positivity, this uh, variant causes abnormalities in insulin secretion, in insulin processing, and in insulin sensitivity, because that has been shown, as you are saying, in people with type 2 diabetes and also in healthy controls. So even uh, people who do not have diabetes, uh, because these variants are so frequent. So one of these alleles is carried by almost 50% of the people. That, that's a very large percentage of all of us. So, um, so all of us have these, uh, or many of us, half of the people basically have some abnormality or some differences in how insulin is secreted or, or our sensitivity to insulin. So, and that has been shown in, in healthy people and even more so, of course, in, in type 2 diabetes. So we were expecting that, that we would be able to show that in, in type 1, in people who are in the very early stages of type 1, as we understand it today, that is those who are at risk for clinical type 1 diabetes, who already have all antibody positivity, and, but it didn't happen. Uh, so we were not able to show that. So, so we think that besides the uh, limitations that I mentioned, such as, of course, a relatively small number of people who have this variant in homozygosis, but still we have you know, a fair amount of people who just carry it in, in heterozygosis. So, uh, so besides that, we think that what may happen is that in those very early stages of type 1 diabetes, uh, there's actually already problems in insulin secretion that we were not able to, that we currently are not able to capture. And, and then it was difficult to show the differences. So typically um, in epidemiology, when you want to show differences, you know, it's easier if you have like a wide spectrum, right? Because then you yeah. can see how the groups uh, vary. However, if you are working with a very narrow range, it's more difficult to show differences. And of course, we are talking here of very small differences, very, very small effect. So, so we think that that is what happened, that as opposed to healthy controls, people who have two antibodies already have abnormalities in insulin secretion. And, and that's why we couldn't, we couldn't show it. So the implications of that is that we were expecting to be able to find those differences and then say, okay, so all of those therapies that are known to be effective in treating type 2 diabetes, uh, insulin secretion, abnormalities, insulin sensitivity, so forth, are going to be useful in people at risk for type 1. But at this point, we basically have to go back to the drawing board and, um, and, and think what, what is the next step. Yeah. I mean, ha do you have any other targets in mind that, um, you know, you might want to look at at the early stages or maybe even at the first um, event, the first presentation of the autoantibody? Um, you know, are you just going to kind of go back into the trial net data and start mining for different associated SNPs or, you know, I mean, is, is that what the sort of what the epidemiological field is, is up to these days? Yeah, exactly. I think that you're completely right that we need to go earlier in the process uh, because the fact is that these genetic variants have an influence on how people uh, manage insulin. So in terms of being able to secrete insulin, to respond to it. And uh, the more we can use uh, treatments to boost beta cell health or to boost insulin sensitivity, 
the more we can help other strategies such as trying to stop autoimmunity. And we think that those are actually related. So kind of in support of this concept is that BMI, obesity and overweight, which of course we all know that is a risk factor for type 2 diabetes, we showed in TrialNet that is also a risk factor for uh, type 1 diabetes, which is not so surprising. So basically in type 1 diabetes, what happens is that people are progressively more, uh, have more problems to, to secrete enough insulin. And so it's progressively more difficult to meet the, de- the demands of insulin resistance. So if you need very little insulin because you are very fit uh, and just your genetics give you a great insulin sensitivity, then you are able to get by with less insulin secretion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, if your BMI increases or if you have genetics that give you not a very good insulin sensitivity, then the little insulin that you make is not enough much earlier. So that is not surprising. So, so what, what about this whole idea of, you know, JDRF has this um, shout out to the general population. Hey, get a kit, you know, we'll get, see if you have, uh, take your blood and we'll see if you have any sort of predisposition mm-hmm. to di- type one diabetes. What about, and you know, we all know there's like infants are born and then they get a a heel stick and they get tested for a variety of different things. What about just testing right then and there? You're, you know, you're an MD, you know, testing right then and there for genetic susceptibility for type one at at birth. And and then kind of like really following those individuals that may have the genetic susceptibility carefully right from that time point. Is that, is that something that people have or you know, researchers are talking about? Is it something that has even been attempted in small trials? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there, there are observational studies that select newborns who have the genetic markers for type 1 diabetes. So, and then follow them trying to understand the natural history of why type 1 diabetes happens. Uh, and those are mostly in, in, you know, the Nordic countries, correct? Correct, correct. But uh, I think that an important concept that explains why that is not, as much as I like genetics, why that is not the solution is that type 1 diabetes is polygenic. There are, I mean, at least probably 70, 80 genes that contribute to having type 1 diabetes, as opposed to monogenic diabetes, where if you get this gene, you know that you will get the disease. Not completely true either, because there's penetrance and other factors. But if you identify people with this gene, you know that the odds of them developing the disease are very, very high, right? Like 50%, 60%, nothing like that in type 1 diabetes. Yeah. Genetics is an important factor, but there's something in the environment that combines with it to trigger that. So even, for example, uh, with people, um, uh, so, so for example, so, so and then the triggers that immune. So, so the next step is antibodies. So that's why TrialNet focuses on people with or antibody positive, right? Uh, and then follows them. So if you follow those people, then you know that the risk of developing type one is much higher. Right. What we do today is incorporate genetics into the predictive model. So definitely it's a very important factor. Genetics, age, BMI, sex, antibody number, type, titer, uh, those are very important. Yeah, it's, it's, it's extremely uh, heterogeneous disease. It's very complex. I wondered if, um, we spoke yesterday or the other day with Desi Ozirik and, um, uh, Jennifer Wang at UMass and 
we were talking about the epigenetic signature mm-hmm. and you know trying to sort of understand the snapshot during the of the epigenetic progression during uh the prodrome yeah. and i mean so is your are, are you guys also kind of factoring that in and what do you think it'll take to sort of layer all these all this information i mean are we going to have to really get into the ai world to really understand this layering yeah. That's a, a that's a very good point. Yeah, I mean, so so epigenetics is definitely very important, right? And then in terms of the uh, artificial intelligence, so you know, I'm working right now with a group in TrialNet. Uh, so basically, we got NIH funding to um, genotype the whole TrialNet cohort. So we have instead of having a thousand people, we'll have close to five thousand people that we know the genetics and we can explore with more power many of these hypotheses, right? But we are working with a group in the University of Exeter who are mathematicians, very used to really complex modeling and uh, really numbered people, right? Trying to, to help us with that. So I think that when trying, so definitely doing modeling with the most advanced statistical methodologies is critical and that actually one of the aims that we had with this paper that we are hoping to submit very soon. So we can create the most updated, most complex model possible. It will be then very important to make it usable by clinical investigators, by very soon by clinicians, because the next step is that you have to choose people from the general population, because now we have some therapies that are close to hopefully becoming a standard to prevent Taiwan, but you need to, who are you going to give them to, right? Yeah, and that's like, that reminds me, you know, it's like teplizumab, right? Prevention exactly. bias. Yeah. Who's going to get it? And how will it, you know, <clears throat> because you want the, the ones who will benefit uh, to get it really. And- exactly. So the risk benefit uh, assessment is critical and a huge part of that is being able to tell people with very high accuracy the risk of Taiwan is this much, right? Because if you tell me 20% is very different from 90%, right? And then the accuracy, how sure are you? So that's what we are trying to do. So build the most precise, accurate model. And of course, you know, investigators in Taiwan diabetes are very active. So we are finding new things continuously. For example, in this new attempt uh, to update the model, we are including Taiwan uh, autoantibody uh, type, which before we hadn't, uh, autoantibody titer, which we hadn't before. We realized that we have to look at buckets of people differently. So that's very advanced modeling. So we are definitely working on that. And then I think that we need to make it with a very friendly interface so that clinicians can really use it, right? So yeah. you just enter a few uh, characteristics and you know the machine does it for you and you can use it. So yeah, no, um, that brings me <clears throat> that brings me to <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> think about um, um, what T1D Exchange does in Boston, right? They facilitate these types of trials and bring it into the clinic. Seems like that would be a really a perfect, um, you know, intersection of, yes. of what you're talking about. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, and absolutely, and this this has to be uh, this is a, a team effort in all the senses, right? So we need the very basic investigators, translational people, clinicians, uh, you know, policymakers, because of course, you know, you are talking about screening the general population. Who is going to pay for this? Who is going to pay for treatment? Is it financially via- viable, 
very complicated. And then, of course, people with uh, Taiwan and their family members. So that is, that is a critical part, right? What, what do they think that is important? How it should be done? You know, is it well accepted? What are the barriers? Yeah. yeah. And I wonder, what are your thoughts on just sort of using a pre-existing um, data set? Like, for instance, you know, the Michael J. Fox, um, you know, ha um, has partnered with 23andMe for Parkinson's. Um, what about the type one diabetes or JDRF, you know, kind of, you know, partnering with 23andMe to, to look at the, the data that's already there? Yeah. That, do you think that's just too uh, messy data to already? Yeah, I mean, I, I there's- Not as good as TrialNet. Yeah, so there's definitely a lot of interest in screening the general population, uh, but, uh, and, and, and the, I mean, so the genetics part is one piece, but you also would need to have data on, uh, for example, islet or antibodies. So you would be able to, to contact those people and say, maybe you have the genetics, would you like to be tested for antibodies, right? So at this point, we do have a fair, I don't know if fair is the, the word, but you know, a number of studies from the general population or selected for uh, genetics or selected for being relatives of people with Taiwan, things like that we are really trying to, to exploit. So, but I know that there is definitely efforts and trying to uh, circumvent the issues with privacy and uh, all of that, but definitely, yes, very exciting times to use very large data sets. And I also wondered, um, I mean, we have a couple of guests here. I, I'm hoping that they would add something into the chat and maybe say, um, send a few uh, questions into the chat or just sort of uh, unmute themselves and ask a question. We'd be happy to um, have them ask something. I guess I would also ask um, before anyone else does, if, or if they'd like to, um, what are your thoughts about the whole, you know, COVID cohort, people that go on to develop diabetes after cohort. We know that Coxsackie, right, has been implicated as a viral trigger. Mm -hmm. and that there was some talk and it seemed like mixed review, like whether or not COVID yeah. was really driving type one following the infection. Right. Yeah. I mean, that is very interesting. Um, I'm following that literature very with interest and, and very uh, eager to know what happens. But basically, there are many potential confounders. Uh, you know, some of course we know that Taiwan is something that is probably get started very early in life. So mm -hmm. looking at the events over the past, you know, I mean, not few months, many many months with COVID by now. Yeah. But uh, but uh, it's not going to give us the answer as to what triggers that autoimmune process. But there's definitely very very interesting, intriguing data on that. So uh, and there's, there's definitely viruses are known to uh, to create those problems in the beta cell, make it more susceptible. So there are many reasons to think that it, that is that is true, but it's not uh, my particular research, so I cannot be, you know, more informed. Uh, yeah, it's not clear yet. I don't, I don't think. I mean, yeah. people seem to be like very... Um all over the place in terms of what's happening. So, yeah. Um, I wondered, so uh, I wonder if Jimming or Maha would like to send any questions, anything more? I guess uh, you really sort of answered everyone's questions. Oh, that's oh. okay. Someone said, that's all right. We just were talking about and very interesting discussion. Thank you for that. 
Um, I guess I would lastly just want to ask you about, let's talk about when you go back into pre-existing data and you find new hypothesis or information, which is something we're promoting in our D challenge. We have a consensome basically actually built um, from a scientist uh, who was at Baylor um, College of Medicine and his name is uh, Dr. Um, Neil McKenna. He has the Signaling Pathways Project and he's built a consensome, what he calls a consensome. He built that sort of um, to understand what genes are coming off and on during the COVID uh, infection. And now he's um, you know, brought it to both DKNet and, and to us at the Sugar Science to um, talk about what genes go on and off in the PBMCs during type one diabetes. It's very interesting. It's kind of um, merged with Index and Cytoscape, and we're offering that to the community to basically come in and using, you know, coming in and looking at it at, through the lens of your, you know, discipline or, or interest, and see if you can sort of, um, you know, wade through it and pick out a, a novel hypothesis. And so I'm hoping um, that maybe we could get the word out uh, at Baylor through your ecosystem and. And you, even novices can try it. Uh, we have a fully, you know, kind of uh, ready to go workstation. And we also have like a, a guiding, you know, health center. So it, it should be really, really easy, even for people who are unfamiliar with oh. the bioinformatics uh, realm. Oh, great. Well, that, that is uh, very interesting. Thank you very much for sharing. So I'll be very, uh, very interested in knowing more about how to access it. So then if you may be following up with an email or, uh, you know, in the chat and, you know, I will be, yeah, I'm actually Absolutely. eager. Yeah, I will. I'll send it to you. And uh, we have it available on our website and we're promoting it heavily on social media, but um, you can just, um, it's free to enter and there's, um, there's prize money associated with the novel hypothesis. There's up to $20,000 in prizes. Okay. Not bad. You know, if you're just That's a grad bad. student or a postdoc who's looking to, you know, get a little extra. Um, and, and kind of be creative in this kind of, um, realm. So that's happening. And then you also, they, um, they'll participants also get a, an audience with the T1G, a JDRF T1D fund, as well as sort of a fast track to the uh, DRC application for grants. Hmm. So yeah, it's kind of, a, it, it's, it's something interesting and hopefully we'll get, um, people registering and joining us. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I'll look at that and will encourage my uh, mentees to do that as well. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure speaking with you. And thank you again for all the great work you're doing in the field. It's amazing. You've, do, you've, you've contributed so much to the field and I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. It's really team effort and uh, there's a lot of interest in, in Taiwan diabetes, which is great to see. Yeah. Great. All okay. right. Well, have a great rest of your day. You Bye. Too. Thank you. Thank you, Thank everyone. You.